Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. It's important to understand the context and understand where you are, but in order to deal with it, you have to deal with the people. They have all different emotions. We have all different emotional responses to the term crisis. It's about um, making decisions. It's about um, different perspectives. And, and all of those are related to people. So if you manage people and if you can, can really take care of, well, their emotions, the dynamics when you work in crisis teams, like many companies do. It's about managing the dynamics in order to get the best out of the people to find solutions for the context afterwards. So I actually I think, yes, ultimately we'll be dealing with an unforeseen situation. But before that, it's about really dealing with the people who are in it and affected by it. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. Now, if you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with Graham Miller, the author of The Human Factor, and with leadership coach Iggy Perillo, then do check them out, but only after you've listened to today's conversation, of course. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Thomas Lantalo of The Crisis Compass. Thomas is an experienced international crisis leader, a mediator, a mentor, a facilitator, and a speaker. His crisis management expertise spans over two decades and 23 countries where he led crisis teams in conflict and disaster contexts, responding to some of the most complex emergencies of our time. Today, he advises business leaders and teams on all aspects of crisis preparedness and response and has a passion for developing experiential, simulated and game-based solutions for effective and innovative learning. In our discussion today, Thomas talked to me about how crisis management is managing people before managing situations. He explained the key habits to build a resilient culture and mindset, and he described communication strategies and when not to ask questions. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Thomas Lantala. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome today to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Oslo in Norway. I think you're the first guest I've had from Norway, Thomas Lantala, who's an experienced international crisis leader, a mediator, a mentor, a facilitator, and a speaker, as well as CEO and co-founder of the Crisis Compass. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Thomas. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. 
It's an absolute pleasure to be in your podcast, Egan. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're, you're connected with Scott Mason and with Oleg Lohid. Scott was on our uh, episode 381 as a guest, and Oleg was our guest on episode 410. So a big hello to Scott and Oleg. Wonderful people. Thank you very much mm. also for introducing us. They set our connection up. So, yeah, really appreciate that. Mm. Now, it's interesting. You, you've background is in military crisis management and you're kind of in the process of transitioning that or sharing that experience with the business world and and with leaders in the business world um i we were talking a little while ago when we first met about your life-changing event in australia because you have been to australia and there was an instance where you had the good fortune and this is really rare to be invited onto Elko Island, which is an island off the north of Australia that is an Aboriginal community, but it's a, it's kind of a, um, well, I, I'm not sure what the right term is, but it's an Aboriginal community that's kind of self-contained within that island. And the interesting thing for me when you told me that story is that uh, normally non-Indigenous people are not invited to these communities. They're, they kind of go there and mostly they're not welcome because they go and then leave again and, and they don't follow up on commitments is, is the perception of the communities. And this particular community was remote and, and kind of insular, not even inviting other Indigenous uh, leaders in, but that was the case in this one, wasn't it? So um, I'm really interested to learn more about that story here at hear it again and also what you know impact it had on you and how that changed you yeah that story is uh, is really my life-changing story so thank you very much for asking about it i love to tell it it's um it's well you call it coincidence or you call it luck or i call it just simply a privilege um that, that i ended up in that ritual but a few steps back this community that you mentioned yes they live secluded on this island and they they really are self-sufficient um there's very few uh, non-Aboriginal Australians that, that that engage with this community usually, but the elders now already quite a year, quite some years back have decided that in order to really increase this intercultural understanding between the, their philosophy, their their way of life, and uh, the ones of the the white uh, Australian population, um, they have to engage. So they started with Darwin University to engage in a Masters of Indigenous Knowledge. And uh, part of that master was this ritual that, uh, that I also happened to be part of. And uh, this ritual went over two, two and a half weeks. And it's called Mawul Rom. Uh, and the ritual is about basically it's conflict resolution and a media, uh, leadership ritual. And uh, the reason I ended up there was was... I think in the perfect time of my life. I just had come out of Afghanistan where I'd worked uh, for two and a half years uh, in humanitarian crisis management. And I uh, I was really in a hole. I um, I sat on the sofa for most days. I didn't really know what to do. And then I, being actually a trained mediator, I started to look on the internet for, for interesting things that could motivate me again. And I came across this ritual. And it didn't say anywhere that it was only for Australians. So I just gave it a try and applied. I do think in retrospect, you said I live in, I live in Norway, uh, in Oslo, Norway, but I'm actually from Austria. And <laughs> I have no idea why Austria and Australia are so similar in English, right? But uh, yeah. that, 
that kind of led to the fact that, that I ended up in this ritual because they, they didn't read my application so carefully. Um, because when I came there, I realized I was the only non-Australian there. And so did they. So we were equally surprised, but we took it for what it was because I just offered a different perspective, an outsider perspective to, to the challenges between Aboriginal and, and white Australians, which was also interesting. I learned a lot. But what really happened most in this ritual was that I got an, a very small glimpse and a brief introduction into the philosophy and the way of, of, of looking at the world that the Aborigines have. And I really, I, I took so much from it because it was incredibly challenging. So to, for example, we were not allowed to ask questions. So if we, we coming and being trained to ask questions, that's of course our, yeah, it's also my, my profession partly. And that was very difficult, but it led to a lot of self-reflection. It led to a lot of growth and it led to a lot of, uh, really getting to know myself better and, and being very founded in my own values and beliefs. And I, this is something that later on I want to take, or I try to take into my work. I try to take this into my crisis work. I try to take this into my, my work with teams and leaders. And it's been incredibly inspirational since. Uh, hmm. That's a fascinating story, and it must have been a real privilege. I mean, it's funny that um, somebody read your application and <laughs> saw Austria, Australia, same thing. It's uh, it's something that I, I've had that experience quite a lot in the US. <laughs> People in the US, Austria, Australia must be pretty close. <laughs> um, but that that happens in Australia is is quite funny. Um, the I'm curious. You, you mentioned, and I, I picked up on this in some of the um, some of the stuff you've written about this um, experience, the idea of learning lessons without asking questions. And, and so what, what was some of the, I mean, to me, it says, okay, you've got to, you've got to really focus on other observation skills. So what, what were some of the strategies that you did and what were some of the strategies you observed? from the indigenous community, the people there, uh, that they, how they learnt um, with this rule of not asking questions? The idea in the beginning, this was very difficult because we were pretty much said, told that this is the only rule. Don't ask mm. questions. And we, we didn't take this particularly seriously, partly because we didn't take it seriously, but partly also because we couldn't, because we were trained since we were small. If you don't understand something, yeah. ask. And we, we literally understand, understood nothing. And I was not the only one. Uh, there were so many questions, right? If you are introduced to a philosophy that you, you don't know, you want to know everything about it. Plus the experience being on this wonderful island, um, you know, new social dynamics that you want to explore. So we asked a lot and we were constantly reminded, no questions. And what they told us is observe, listen and learn. And what was interesting that after day three, it became really, really frustrating. So you could see that, that there was this, this desperation to get answers to what I didn't understand. And not only in me, but also in the other guests on that island. And, uh, and then something happened. And that, that was really, this desperation turned into really a, an incredible gift because overnight almost you said, like, I need these answers. So I give them, I give them myself, right? It was, it, it was really, you turned the perspective to the inside. And, and that's when, really magic happened because you you started to reflect over well what is actually leadership for me because i realized that before that i was so quick in asking people people that are, are wise that have you know have had lots of leadership experience have seen the world i i kept asking you know how is it what is leadership but i never reflected on what i actually think about it what i take away mm. what i 
what I think is is relevant for me, and and that just gave me almost a forced opportunity to do so. And and this is a wonderful strategy because you you what happens is is your communication changes. You're not trying to convince anymore the other person about or or explore or are actually at the other person with your with your perspectives, but you are start with yourself and you start sharing. And the, sh and the sharing starts to build on each other. And what happens is then you, by nature, expand your reality even more. So this is uh, this is a wonderful way to learn. And yes, I I also I continue to ask questions and I ask a lot of them, a lot of them. But but here and there I do workshops where I actually do that. And and I do these elements in my in my work for simply pushing the, the participants or or my clients to really think about things differently and explore their own perspectives about it. And uh, it has to do, as you said, a lot with observation. It has to do a lot with listening, but it has also to do a lot with with uh, becoming very aware of your own beliefs, of your own position, and and trying and daring to share that. And if you do that, it's it's incredibly beneficial and really a learning experience. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I I'll come back to the um, question I have around communication, asking questions. Uh, the the thought that crossed my mind there was that, you know, in the Western societies, and I think this is pretty common across all Western societies, that um, children, like there's this magic age of around two or three where it's like, why is that, why is that, why is that? And um, it seems to be every single child around that age has this incessant thirst for knowledge, but they also ask this why question all the time. It's why, 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 why? And often you find that parents kind of get fed up with this questioning and at some point say, oh, stop, you know, to, you know, why is the sky blue? Why, why is it, why are the clouds up there? You know, sort of why questions that as adults we don't even think about. And then at some point that's trained out of us, but it's not just the questioning that's trained out of us, it's kind of the curiosity that's trained out of us. And yet, we still ask questions, and, and I'm thinking we ask questions because we often are too lazy to do the work ourselves and do that, you know, that inner reflection or self-awareness you know, self or the observation. So we kind of look for the easy way and, hey, help me do this uh, kind of question. And, and so there's this, you know, two things that I think are going on um, and here there's a culture that is so focused on the observation part that and I think there's a, there's a great lesson we can learn from that. How do you see that kind of all that dichotomy or it's more than a dichotomy I guess the you know losing the curiosity still asking the questions and try uh, in some ways making it easy for ourselves and, and losing losing the curiosity and also losing in some ways the other senses of observation that, that give us information. I, I think that, that you have wonderful points in what you've just said. It's um, and my perspective on this is that exactly the giving these answers too much actually kills our our creativity and curiosity. What I've really started to to do as a habit with my own children when they ask, and they are actually in this phase now, uh, both of them. <laughs> and yes, it can it can get a lot, but but I have uh, in. I'm trying to be very aware of to first play it back and say like, well, what do you think about it? And, and just simply give them the chance to not, 
So not immediately tell them an answer that I know, yeah, I know why this guy is blue. But like, what do you think about it? Just to, to stimulate their creativity and to keep, keep actually this almost like as a, I give them the, the, the signal that there is space for you to come with your own answer. You don't have to always listen to what somebody else tells you. I can then share what I think about it. And you, you take it away. And the older we get, the more we, we categorize anyway than knowledge and, and, and creative ideas. But, uh, this is for me one of the elements what, what kills our curiosity. If we give, if we're giving too many answers. And it's also mm -hmm. connected to this, this self-reflection that you mentioned, because I wasn't, I thought I was self-reflective. I was really not at all. And that's what I realized there because all, like my understanding of leadership was consisted of what I had read and heard from different people. I really had never sat down until that point on that island and reflected over what do I actually think about it. And yes, I can listen. That's fine. But nobody told me like, that's the answer. They just shared what they think about it. And, and, uh, and this simply this not trying to convince or the, the, the understanding that there's no one truth, but it's, it's really a mosaic of perspectives, which makes this so wonderful, I think, and which makes these connections so important because that's just really a privilege to explore, explore new perspectives, not only in, with Aborigines, but actually globally. And that's really what I'm, what I'm trying to do and try to facilitate. And that brings back, it brings back this curiosity, brings back this interest to discover, to explore. To say, what do you actually think about this? Wow. That's a very different question because if I know what I think about it, I'm not in, I'm, I'm not, it's almost, uh, I'm not interrogating you what you think about it, but it's more like, I'm curious what you think. Cause I think that. And then it becomes more of an exchange rather than a clear question answer. And, and that thing, that I think is, is then questions are useful, but first you have to be clear with yourself what you think about it for asking. Yeah, self-awareness. It, it, it's interesting. It always comes up this idea of self-awareness in a lot of the topics we speak about. It's um, if you know, if we take the time to reflect and really know our own values, and um, and in this case, like how do we learn, or how can we display leadership in a way without just asking questions or without kind of giving answers to people? Then um, you know, it makes a big difference. I know from my experience in the corporate world, I had an international career with leading teams from across uh, seven, eight different countries, different cultures, different languages. And so there were, there was always this, um, for me, this curiosity when I visited a country, like for example, I was, would visit Japan or I'd visit Korea or I would visit China quite a lot or India. We were talking about India earlier before we started recording and, um, just to learn about those cultures, which clearly are very different to our Western Anglo-Saxon culture. And I was always asking lots of questions, but it was the response I got was because I displayed that curiosity and a genuine curiosity and a genuine willingness to learn. So I would try out, you know, language. I'd say, how do you say that in your your language and would try it out and would make an effort to then use that later on, um, that that actually built relationships, that people really responded to that because they could see that I was genuinely interested in their culture, in them as people, as opposed to just coming in and saying, well, I'm going to give you all the answers. And, and that is that is a wonderful example where I think questions are very relevant. And I do think in this particular context, questions were more just that there is there's an underestimated uh, element to questions, I think, and I've experienced, and that's power. 
So already in a situation, so because if you ask a question, you automatically put the spotlight on the person you're asking it to. And, um, and particularly in the context there where I was in on that island, power was a very important topic. Hmm. So by simply depriving from, uh, of one element that actually can give you power, it's, you know, we were all curious, but there was no interest by this Aboriginal community to sit there and be interrogated for two weeks about their own culture. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was not yeah. interest, right? So, so simply setting that frame also. I think it, it was a combination of their philosophy that there is not one truth. It's all about connectedness and sharing and the element like, you know, we, we do not want to make this a one way street. Um, so we're going to make this a bit more difficult and we play a little bit on our rules because you, you are on our turf. And, and that, that just really showed also the, the, the different approaches. And I think that created a lot of, a lot of awareness uh, amongst the, the, the white population, but also in return amongst the bridging population in the sense of how difficult it is. And how difficult it is to also step out of our shoes in terms of questioning, in terms of having to categorize, having to understand everything and an explanation for everything, which is not necessarily the case on, uh, on their end. But questions in cultures, I, and, and really the curiosity is, is important because it connects. It's just showing interest, as you say, and it's, it's a different form and a different intention behind that than it is, uh, than we sometimes often have with questions on a daily basis. Hmm. So, with um, lessons that you learned there, what, what are some of the, particularly the communication strategies that you took away there that, that you're now implementing in your work that um, are lessons from that time? Because clearly um, stepping back and not asking questions for some time forces you to bring some other, other observation skills in, other learning skills in that I'm sure if you then combine that with questions and find the right balance between them, uh, that gives you a much bigger arsenal to choose from and, and use the appropriate communication means at any given time. Communication and uh, communication psychology is a secret obsession of mine. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there we could probably talk the whole day. I am trying to constantly learn. I think this is also what drives me to really to, to learn about myself, but also to learn from others and, and particularly through these connections. So communication is something that I think you it's a constant learning process because technically everybody you meet communicates differently. We have, we have channels with, with, with ways how we can communicate, but I think everybody has their own style. Everybody has their own, their own way of, of um, saying things plus the communication that we, we also um, do non-verbally. I work a lot with, um, with things that with the, with the element of framing. So saying, you know, in how do you approach a certain topic? You can, because that's, that's completely underestimated how in which context you put it and in which context you actually communicate something, how that influences your, both your behavior, your mindset, your reactions to it, your emotions connected to it. And that can actually have a significant outcome on, on how you, well, how you perform, for example, in a business or how you get through a crisis, not least since that's what I'm working with most now. Another, another approach is really this. I, I really, really avoid, uh, qualifications. Good, bad, right, wrong. I, I, I avoid that because that's so subjective. It's, it's just really, uh, the, the beautiful example is, is leadership. Uh, we technically, when we talk about leadership, we kind of implicitly always talk about good leadership, but good leadership yeah. means something very different for, for, for different people because there is leaders that I would never consider a leader even, but for other people, they are the perfect leaders. So, so this topic is fascinating for me because it's so debated, but it's so subjective at the same time. 
and qualifying good and bad makes it makes it almost like you, you split and you divide because what's good for me is maybe bad for you but if you if you approach it in a different way if you just simply talk about leadership without qualifying it then there is an exchange so this this is certainly a method that that I apply and then I talk a lot from my own perspective so I really try to to not uh, generalize I try to not uh, make you know uh, statements that that are that are valid for everybody but really like this is how I perceive it and and there's space for different opinions and different perspectives and, and all have their uh all have their their right and their their space but um but I'm trying to speak at speak of it as mine so also to be clear that this is this is the way I see it and I'm curious to hear how this so those are a few tools that I try to very subtly apply because my my experience with communication tools is like active listening for example is a very very common very widespread tool that's often trained it's not as easy as it looks and it's also if you if you don't tailor it to your communication style it becomes very artificial for you as a communicator but also the person picks up on it immediately that this is uh, so for example when i learned about it the first time and i and i applied it to my then girlfriend now wife she was like you're commu you're communicating very weird i, I can't talk to you <laughs> yeah. yeah clear because she knows me in a very different setting right um hmm. so yeah yeah and it's uh, the the active listening thing is uh, i remember when we first did exercises on it in the corporate world we were being trained in that and it was kind of like there was two or three phrases and and one of them that i remember was oh so what i heard you say is and then you Kind of <laughs> that's a typical the person back that the, the phrase and and it, it was like you know it became like when somebody else then would use that in that work context one of the other people that you worked with would say so what i heard you say and we'd both just break out laughing you wouldn't <laughs> take it seriously <laughs> that's and that's very common i've heard that a lot and i've experienced this myself because you if you're all in the same training you know all the same things. So the moment you use that phrase, everybody's like, okay, are you trying to uh, play now active listening <laughs> with me? It, it becomes not natural anymore. It's, it's a nice, you know, mood lifter, but, but if you really want to apply the tool, you have to make it your own. And, and as with every tool, I think you should make it your own. I, sh I think you should, in order to keep your authenticity with it and to really be convincing when using it, you have to see how this feels natural for you. I worked a lot as a facilitator and I, I don't think I've ever used a tool or a, a, an exercise the same way twice because I just I, I learned from using it the first time, right? And and it just simply has to be authentic when I do it because if I go according to the script, then it becomes difficult because people will see that he's not really buying into it himself, and then already might lose my my audience and the connection to the group. So that's very yeah, important. Yeah. And I find I find when you are natural and i mean there's a lot of skills obviously that uh are learned skills but when they become unconscious and part of your being and consistent with your values and and your whole personality um then it's um then it it doesn't come across as this is learned active listening or whatever other tool that might be and you know i often I'm in situations where my business coach says, Oh, you did this or you did that when giving me feedback. And I, you know, and, and uses some term that's like, okay, you're, you're really good at active listening, for example. And I say, Oh, was I? <laughs> I just was doing my thing. <laughs> but, but that's, that's the best way. 
if you're not even mm. conscious about it, then then you're really good at it because then you're, yeah. you it's so natural to your communication. And and I think I, I would like to add one 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 thing that's often underestimated since I just mentioned authenticity. The same is is true for for communication in the way that we must never forget that technically every message we're giving is the, the meaning of every message we're giving is determined by the receiver, not the sender. Mm. We can have all the intention we want. But if, if the receiver doesn't get it, and that's very important for crisis communication, for example, but every, technically for all communication, it's important to have that in mind. So there, that often creates misunderstandings. But first of all, our intention isn't visible. Second, if uh, the way we communicate it is important, but, but also to really understand that the, the receiver gives it meaning. So they can, they, their reaction is often very different, often very different from what we intended. And that's natural because we, we forget that they hear, see, read often. These days, digital communication is a very, very good example where the substitute of emojis, uh, for our, for our <laughs> mimic and everything cannot really make yeah. up for, for the context that they, that the reader puts it in. So that's, uh, uh and sim, and the similar thing I've observed with authenticity because I can always say like I'm authentic, but if I'm not perceived authentic, hmm. uh, yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a really good point, and I'd add to that that um, it's not only is it so if I'm communicating something to you, um, and there's an intention behind that communication, but your interpretation is different than what my intention was, then that's to be expected in many cases. But then I have to take responsibility for that communication. First of all, I have to be aware that hey, you're not you're not getting it the way I intend it. And I have to take responsibility for my communication and say, well, it's not being received. So I need to change something. Definitely. Responsibility lies on both, both sides with communication. I, I really, really uh, support that. And there, for example, a question is very relevant. Even if you see the reaction isn't what you expected, it's like, okay, so, so what was it that, that, you know, how did yeah. you now hear my question um, or my, my statement? Or so then mm. the question can be very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's great. Um, one of the other things you said, and um, you know, this idea of "oh, that was good," um, or "that was bad," or yeah, um, I'm working really hard to get those terms out of my language in that kind of context. And also, I'm I'm in situations a lot now where I'm finding that I'm giving feedback or I'm asking for feedback from people, and whenever I hear um, good or bad. I say, well, what was good about it? What was bad about it? So I sort of get specific because I think that really isn't that helpful. Um, and the other thing, when I'm giving feedback, I also, because you mentioned before that it's what resonated with you when you give that feedback. So I, I kind of say, rather than, oh, that was good or that was bad, um, I would say something like, oh, I really like this bit and here's why I liked it. And I thought you, I thought this bit didn't work for me. And here's why I thought it didn't work for me. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's me. And, and the person can kind of take it on board and say, well, I wanted it to work for you. So I'll make some changes or they can say, well, that doesn't matter to me. And that, that's exactly how it, how I, I also do it and how I promote people to do it. Because, uh, I mean, a wonderful example, I had to think about the website of my first company when we made that. And, um, 
like literally everybody told us something different. Like, oh, I like it. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I don't like that one. That, that doesn't work. Mm. It's, but it was these generalizing statements. And it's like, well, yesterday somebody told us that this works really well. <laughs> so it becomes also very difficult if you, if you're generalizing. But if some, if you state your own opinion, you actually really, nobody can really attack you for your own experience or your own opinion. Mm. So you're not really giving any, any opportunity because I'm saying like, yes, for me, this, this didn't work. Uh, mm. that doesn't mean it doesn't work for others, but for me, it didn't. And what you do with that information, that is again up to you, right? Because if you, if you then go back and say, well, I want to change it, then potentially hasn't worked for you as well, but you didn't know before. So, because otherwise, if you're anyway convinced and one person tells you it doesn't work for me, but the others say it's fine, then you probably don't go back and change it. Mm, that's right. Because you do get lots of different feedback, um, and particularly when it gets specific and something as subjective as how does that website look. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Okay, well, one of the things that you mentioned in some of the material that I was reading was crisis management is managing people before situations. And we've been talking about sort of, you know, understanding people and communicating with people. So what is it? What does that mean exactly? What do you mean by that exactly? That is, that is, uh, uh, yeah, a realization that I had a bit because I mean, for, for many years, uh, when I worked in managing crisis, I was really, following and had the conviction that, that, you know, this is about managing situations and dealing with, with situations and with, with events. Um, and then really the, the past year when I, when I spoke to a lot of people and, and asked them how, about how their experience was, because it all of a sudden crisis management turned very personal for many, it got into a living room. It wasn't while it was at the same time on a global scale. So it was almost omnipresent. And, um, so I asked them, so, so, you know, how is your experience with it? Since I've worked with it a lot and, and I wanted to hear how they were doing and, uh, what their responses really made, made it clear and clearer. There's one common denominator that they all refer to. And that, that has something to do with emotions, people, uh, dealing with, with dynamics. And it's all connected to people. And when I started to reflect a bit how I, how I worked with it. Um, it was less about the context and every single time I went into the context and, and focused on the context, it became difficult because it's outside my scope of influence and there's not much you can do about it. It's important to understand the context and understand where you are, but in order to deal with it, you have to deal with the people. They have all different emotions. They have all different emotional responses to the term crisis. It's about, um, making decisions. It's about, um, different perspectives and, and all of those are related to people. So if you manage people and if you can, can really take care of, well, their emotions, the dynamics, when you work in crisis teams, like many companies do, it's about managing the dynamics in order to get the best out of the people to find solutions for the context afterwards. So I actually think, yes, ultimately we'll be dealing with an unforeseen situation. But before that, it's about really dealing with the people who are in it and affected by it. Because in a crisis situation, if nobody effect is affected by it, it's arguably not a crisis. So you, yeah. you have to, you have to really start, start there. And that usually is, is very powerful and helped me a lot in my, in my mental reframing because I really, you take a lot of ownership back and you actually all of a sudden have the feeling I have, uh, have the ability to do something because I can cooperate with people. I can, you know, uh, connect to people and, and work together and deal with the dynamics. I cannot do so much about the travel restrictions, let's say, to keep with the pandemic. But I can do something about how my, my team thinks about it, 
how they how they think about it, uh, share perspectives, and define our problems together. Hmm. Yeah, it's a um, really uh, good way to look at it. And I, you know, we were talking again before we started recording um, today. As we record this um, tomorrow, my wife and I were about to head off on a week's vacation for our fortieth wedding anniversary. And today, um, the government here locally uh, announced a seven-day hard lockdown. We can't go more than five kilometres from our home. And basically all restaurants and venues are, are shut for that period of time because of a, a outbreak that's rapidly spreading and of one of the Indian variants of the COVID strain. So that's a, a situation that's really bad. And they wanted to nip it in the bud before it gets too bad. And of course, we were looking forward to this vacation for some time and now, now we're a bit sad. Um, but immediately I kind of took the view as soon as it was announced I said okay vacation's off um, nothing I can do to change that um, so how do we move forward what do we do so one of the questions we started discussing um, how can we make next week a nice week for us and how can we have some fun just around the home and the other thing of course is looking forward to okay how do we how we rearrange the vacation and all the bookings we'd made so that we can utilize them in the future. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for this. Don't worry about the, I mean, I, we could have sat back and said, Oh, you know, woe is us because this is knocked over our, our holiday. And of course there was some of that <laughs> there, but, um, we kind of did that. For ten minutes, and then said, "Okay, it's done. Let's move on and and influence the things that we have control over, and and move forward from there." And this is this this unfortunate situation is is a perfect example how you handled it. How how I try to work with clients uh, when they when they're in crisis situation. It's really redirecting the focus because the, mm. the the emotional response it becomes a spiral. If you are if you're focusing too much on the context that you can't influence, it becomes a spiral. Because you get frustrated. There's a new decision. Again, you get frustrated because, because what frustrates us is not necessarily the decision. It's the helplessness. It's, it's mm. not being able to do anything with it. That, that, that frustrates us and makes us angry. And, and we, we actually put the responsibility on so many other people and factors, uh, instead of really shifting the focus and say, like, as you, as you would beautifully describe, well, how, how, what can we do about it? What options mm. do we have? And, and very often it's, 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 must not stop with simply looking at the options that you naturally are presented, but as you also said, like create your own options. And maybe there's a, maybe there's something we can do we haven't had on the screen yet, or you know maybe there was another plan that we've had a couple a couple of years ago which we never materialized, yeah. which doesn't require us to go anywhere else. And and this shift of focus is is a key key criteria for for effectively dealing with critical situations. Hmm. So one of the questions that I had as as we were talking through that is how do you build that kind of mindset into a uh, into a business culture or a company culture so that um, you know particularly in good times when everything's going well and there's no crisis on the horizon and then all of a sudden you know something like this pandemic comes out of the blue and they have to respond to a vastly changed situation. How do you instill that resilience, that um, you know, culture of um, 
we'll control what we can control and not worry about the stuff that's out of our control? That is, that is a great question, really, because it's a bit of my worry right now, uh, seeing the companies <laughs> getting excited that the doors in, in some countries open yeah. up again. And, and that's pretty much when you, when you forget what has happened in the past 14 months, mm. right? Some, some say like, yeah, we want to do learning exercises. And I've seen that a lot. And then they do a learning exercise, but they're already back to business and mm. forget until the next situation hits because it will hit. Might not be a pandemic, might be a pandemic. We don't know, but something will come again eventually. And, uh, for me, it's preparedness for, for, for crisis is, has its limitations. I'm very clear on that. I think planning has a lot of limitations. I think planning is also an activity that is largely based on assumptions and, and mental models that we've had. And if we don't identify those, we can fall into traps. I've, I've experienced this several times. I've been really on, on both ends of this where you had wonderful crisis plans and then the crisis came and it was nothing like you had expected and the plan just was left on the shelf nobody looked at it and um, it wasn't relevant and unfortunately that happens a lot and that's why i'm promoting really resilience and preparedness for culture and and to your question it's culture for me is like a muscle you, ha you have to train it you have to keep it going it's not something that you can ever say like well we're done our culture is is ready it, it has to develop it, it has to naturally uh, be trained and that's why also preparedness is for me a process that never stops because you also never know when the crisis comes. So you have to kind of always de develop this, this readiness. But what it's, what is important for me is not to make this a separate activity from, from your everyday work. I think crisis preparedness is, is something that should be part of your everyday work. So the way I promote this is to really have a couple of habits, very simple habits that make your culture very, uh, that make you culturally very quickly able to react adapt, understand the situation, uh, deal with the situation, deal with the people in it. And, and that is simple habits like, um, well, learn how to learn. That's, that's one of my favorite ones. It's, <laughs> it's just really not learning only after, but it's learning as you go. And the learning doesn't stop by having the information. That's, that's a huge gap that I often see. The information is there, what needs to be learned, but it isn't implemented. It's nothing done with mm. Another thing is, Exchanging perspectives is as simple as that. Make a habit of it because when a crisis comes, this is kind of one of the first things to do. How do we perceive it? What's the situation? Have we all a common understanding? Emotions. Your wonderful example. I'm sure you were frustrated and angry for, for a while in the beginning and, and disappointed, mm. not least. All of this has space and must have space. And it's the same in, in a company. I often read this. I'm very critical of when I read like, well, Crisis management has to be uh, has to to be approached rationally. Yes, to a certain extent, I really agree. But yeah. there's you, you cannot not uh, talk about emotions in crisis. They naturally trigger emotions in us, and they will come back. I've seen this so many times. If you ignore them, they come back and haunt you. That they will come back at the most inconvenient moment, and then you have to deal with them. Way more intense than they were at the beginning if you had dealt with them initially. So those are simple habits, and I have. Uh, I've worked on eight habits that, that we work with, with our clients with that are very simple. Identify your assumptions, for example, is another one. And not least, learn from other sectors. I'm a huge fan of looking beyond the scope of your own sector mm. and look into other ones and see, well, what's, what's there? You know, what, what can we take away, uh, for, for our work from that? So those, those are things, but they have to be developed as habits. And for that, you, you create a culture that when the crisis hits, that you actually have already have made this change part of your DNA. It's mystified. It's not so scary anymore. 
because that's what crisis mm. ultimately is it's an extreme extreme change or changes yeah 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 it's great um the the idea of sort of the daily habits and then it becomes part of your um part of your being you, you sort of learn it and practice it and it's it's second nature like we were talking earlier you do it without even knowing about it and that's and that's also the beauty with this is that you don't have to disrupt your everyday work you maybe just the team continues to work in in the way that it has worked before dealing with a different project so if you make crisis management also almost like a project yeah like mm. like that you treat similar to the other projects with a different aim with a different content and everything but the working processes don't differ then you're not naturally disrupting your your business so much because that's what i often see everything stops we have to set a crisis team and the, when the crisis team gives us the direction then we can continue and that's the most dangerous thing for businesses if they stop the business yeah. continuity yeah and i think we're seeing that a lot in in government responses to the pandemic now there was a lot of oh let's just wait to see what happens kind of thing and and assumptions that oh it'll go away or um or if we get to herd immunity or something like that and not um not uh realizing that the speed at which this spreads and the intensity with the, uh, and the impact that it would have was going to be so devastating mm. This global studies that clearly say that, sorry to, to cut you off, uh, just one more sentence. Um, this global studies that clearly say that companies who, who are more proactive, who, who really take, take their choices into their own hands instead of waiting and being reactive and see what, what happens and react to the next development in, in a crisis, they come out better of crisis. There was, the, there were surveys, I think PWC did the survey where, where they really, with, thousands of companies where they'd said you know what what is your success criteria and and um and that came out so if you're more proactive if you take the choices into your own hands you come out better of this crisis as a high in a, at a higher likelihood than the other way around hmm. and and the other thing i think you know you mentioned the habits to practice those things and then being proactive the other thing that builds i think is confidence and it's certainly i mean the a lot of the times I think, you know, the, particularly in the case of governments waiting to make decisions about um, whether to lock down or not in the pandemic or, or whether to order certain vaccines and stockpile certain vaccines for the population or not, um, there's, there's all this hesitancy around and I think, you know, they, they don't have confidence in making that decision and, and I think all those habits build the confidence and build the organizational confidence as well to okay here's the situation here's the decision we're going to make and and let's just do that uh, having considered all factors and it kind of comes back i was having a conversation recently with someone because we were reflecting on the six current success of our sporting team that hasn't had success for quite some time and we we're saying you know they'd build up this winning run and um, i made the comment well you know, confidence is going to go a long way here because win after win after win after win, you build up this confidence. And so that actually contributes to the, the success going forward because there's that confidence in everything they do. Uh, uh, How do you see that playing out in, in kind of the business world or in teams? Confidence is for me the, 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 the key factor for decision making. Uh, in, in crisis and confidence can be built up. It can be, can be trained, as you say. And part of it is through these habits, certainly. 
but part of it is also shifting the focus and that brings us a little bit back to what we've discussed with earlier with the, the right or wrong for example i'm very critical of of qualifying decisions as right or wrong based on the results because i think that's the, that's the focus that that is on the wrong place and that's also what i often see if we focus too much on what could, what could come out of a decision that really really uh, that jeopardizes the confidence because we don't know mm. complex situations like uh, like there's now the pandemic you don't know whether a decision how a decision will play out there's other players who make decisions there's other dynamics that are happening at the same time and and if you want to find the perfect decision based on that you will not find it but mm. with a scope of influence if you're confident in how you made the decision how you got to it how the process was that you had like for yourself again that you had the, the process in place this will give you confidence and the idea of this is that even five years later you say back yeah the result was really not what what i wanted but the way we took the decision i'm super happy about and that's why i still think it was in that sense it was a good decision but also what it does it gives you the confidence to to actually deal with an unexpected or negative result of your decision mm. so you, you you're not really uh, becoming more insecure of it but you're simply saying okay decision didn't work let's start again all over and and move on and that confidence then leads to another success and another success because you you are focusing on something that you can do something about and not something that you have no idea so also judging decisions based on what you couldn't know before i think for me is a mismatch mm. and and the other thing that confidence gives you the ability to pivot quickly as well because you say okay that's not working out um let's decide to change direction um the, that does require, though, that we leave our ego aside a little bit here, right? Because if we kind of say, okay, here's the, here's the decision we made yesterday. It's, that doesn't seem to be working out. The risk of, and, and we've seen examples of that in the pandemic as well, is that people sort of saying, well, it's my decision. We're going to stick by that because otherwise I look bad. <laughs> and, and, and that brings us to, to culture back because for me, there is, if you practice a culture of learning rather than a culture of, of, focusing on mistakes which is technically the similar thing a mistake is only really a mistake when you look back at it yeah. you don't know beforehand whether it's going to be a mistake mm. um and and simply saying like okay didn't work out where are learnings for us and the learnings for me are very 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 important to also include the positive things so really because because we all got through the pandemic and and what i mm. what i have already seen in learning exercises is like so what do we need to improve yeah fair question but also like what was it that actually got us through it what were the things that we did well that actually helped us get through it so if you if you include that you also create uh, the success versus the yeah this this we can work on although i'm also careful with saying like this is what we need to work on because the next crisis might not be completely different and then those things might not be relevant so it's really cultural things and in in promoting this not talking too much about mistakes but but talking about the learnings and then automatically i think you will leave the ego aside and you will not take it personally you will not take it personally as like oh this was a failure or i i, I wasn't a good crisis manager if you can say no i'm super happy with how we took this decision just mm -hmm. didn't didn't work out the way uh and also uh the ego is a, is a funny thing because i see that the, the paradox often that crisis managers or some refer to them as crisis leaders is they they take over a lot of responsibility while at the same time saying like it's too much responsibility so they're they're really neglecting their the biggest assets which is their team and the perspectives yeah. of their teams because they feel an, an, a misplaced sense of responsibility 
yeah, they might have to take the, the, their own decision at the end, but the team is the team is still there to support them. And uh, the, usually the tip that I give them uh, in order to also create that confidence a little bit is that I think the decision makers should should separate themselves from the decision creation process, so from the choice creation process, because you can take a way more, let's say, objective and way more distance decision if you present it with the choices than if you already already developing them, because we're naturally biased towards our own choices. And if you know a lot about them, the decision becomes already a bit skewed. So that's a little, it's, it's a fine tip, and that's very difficult for a lot of leaders because they feel a lot of con loss of control. But if you actually say, I trust my team, come up with choices and present them to me. And then I listen to my intuition, I got feeling my experience, which of the choices works and which doesn't. And that usually is, uh, is actually quite empowering because they feel a lot of, they feel almost liberated of pressure, but at the same time, they say like, okay, you, you created great choices here. I take the decision because this feels right. And, uh, and that, that, yeah, that works for me. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I, um, because I kind of thought about some of the things that I've done where I do some research on the different options and then pull them together. And, and you kind of almost as I'm going through sequentially, so I go option A, option B, option C, oh, option C looks really interesting, and then option D, option E, option F, and kind of option C becomes the, the favourite un until something else is, is really better. It's kind of the favourite, and it's only the favourite because your first impression of it in isolation was was good. But if you then, you know, if you were to step back and say, I don't know anything about either of any of these options, A to F, um, and have them all presented together, it might look totally different. That, that's exactly that's exactly how it is, and and that's also a natural process. So until this option C, your mind was open because there wasn't really a favorable mm -hmm. option. But after that, it's not anymore because you you might have already primed yourself on that on that particular option. Yeah. But if you were presented free, and that could be still the same effect, but if you're presented by somebody else and they explain their reasoning, they explain how they got to this choice, why they picked these options. Uh, and what what the idea is behind them, you get a completely different perspective on it. You're not necessarily making your own uh, that that you add on to that, but you also hear already other other intentions, and that usually creates a bigger picture, and that makes it even richer to come to a decision. Uh, from my experience, hmm. fantastic. All right. Well, I just looked at the clock there. <laughs> <laughs> Lots to talk about. Talk for ages, but um, this is so much fun. Well, I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation sure. round. And Let's it, do that. Uh, it's five scripted questions that are designed to help our audience who are primarily innovators and leaders in their field with tips from your experience. So hopefully you'll give us some insightful answers, inspire them to go and do something awesome as a result of that. I can try. I can try. <laughs> All right. Not that you've not already done that, I think. So what's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? For me, it's about uh, taking pressure of the term innovation. I've noticed that there's a lot of uh, a lot of pressure related to it finding the idea in 10 million, while we're all actually are innovators already and looking in the mirror and say like, I'm an innovator and uh, I have great ideas that can help. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great advice. And I I often talk to people. I say, well, you know, if you improve something by one percent. I think I believe that's innovation. Um, so let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that rather than kind of ignore it, 
and look for the hey i want to i want to come up with something that's 100 percent better than what we're doing now and coming back to your habits before you know if you do that one percent a hundred times you've achieved it and and what you say is the key because for me innovation is anyway it's it's not about finding that one idea yeah they, there's there's certainly many one ideas out there but i think it's all about knowing what to do i compare it sometimes with i got this beautiful skill with my from my from my mother actually like really you know when the fridge is full with with weird things because we couldn't go shopping you still have to get together a dinner and it's basically mm. just using making up something as you go and it's the same with for me with the resources that you have just use them in a different way uh, and again learning from other fields i'm a huge fan of, of the survival uh, shows because they show you what you can actually do with things that you haven't even thought of and that's for the innovation. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Great. All right. Uh, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? I don't know the best thing. I, I think there's different approaches. Of course, I kind of I became self uh, self employed in order to be able to follow my ideas. But I think when I thought about it, for me, what really works uh, with my ideas is actually to, to find people who I can spar with on them, to actually share them. I think that's probably the best mm. thing that I've done, uh, even if they were just ideas and thoughts, because the perspectives and the, 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 the dialogue that I got around them, that just usually helped me follow with the ideas and gave me new, new push and motivation to move forward. Mm. Yeah, I find talking with other people often, and often they give you some information that, you know, you talked about uh, learning from other fields, so they often give you information about uh, other perspective and it might be another field but it's certainly the other person's perspective you know oh, i hadn't thought about that so and then all of a sudden the idea becomes stronger or you realize that hey maybe that's not going to work but i'll i'll change it a little bit mm -hmm. yeah definitely i, I see mm -hmm. that the same way yeah all right now do you have a favorite resource you use most often uh, my favorite resource that was a tricky one uh, i <laughs> i don't really have a practical resource but when i when i thought of what really helps me to 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 move forward and to be more productive and to be more innovative um then it's actually might might be an uh, unusual one but it's sleep um i have mm -hmm. um mm. i've really gotten into sleep research and by by a fantastic book by matthew walker which is called uh, why we sleep quite recent and it's really the newest research on sleep and it, it gives you a couple of practical tools that you can really that really help me to be innovative like for example when i have a specific problem i think about it just before i go to bed uh, or mm. the rare occasions that i still have a nap with two small children but i um but but usually the brain works it out and you come up with new ideas and uh, it's it's incredibly i mean this is just one fraction of what what sleep does i think yeah. completely underestimated and i that that's my my strongest resource and i've wait and i've waited little yeah, that, <laughs> at the moment so. that's that's fascinating i'll have to look that book up i'm not familiar with that it will change the, your life um, i guarantee you that it's yeah. um it's a life changer that book yeah i have heard um a few people say that you know if they think about what's on what's on their mind for the day or what what you know the big thing that they've got to deal with tomorrow if they think about that before they go to bed and think, you know play some scenarios through or so on, often they wake up with the solution already sorted because unconsciously they're working on it in their sleep. And and I know I've had some things that came up either in dreams or the unconscious. So I'd often get up in the morning and I think, oh, what was that all about? I was kind of there was something going on 
overnight. I was sort of, you know, I'm half conscious of there was something there. And sometimes if I can grab a hold of whatever was there, that often gives me ideas or um, in, things to take away. Yeah. In this book, he actually, I think it was Edison, uh, some of the great inventors uh, had b built a chair uh, for that he that he where he would nap on, and the chair was built in a way that just before he fell into deep sleep, he fell off that chair, so that he woke up, okay. and, and because that's that's when the, the 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 brain apparently is most creative, so he actually mm. deliberately used that technique to to come up with <laughs> ideas and, and solve problems. So that's um, yeah. That definitely works. For me, it doesn't. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. I'm not sure about falling off the chair, <laughs> but, but yeah. I guess maybe there's other ways to, to trigger you. Yeah, I do think so. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Now, what's the best way to keep a client on track? It's for me one of the habits uh, that I have written about. It's the, the, the what I call the magic moment. Um, it's regularly stopping and zooming out and uh, seeing if we still have the same understanding, if still we're still on track with the task, if still the task is actually the same. Um, so it's, it's really practicing this regularly. What's the situation? What's our task? What's our approach? Are we still on track? If you do that habitual, that, that certainly keeps you on track and it also uh, avoids that you really uh, dissecting into other, into other issues. Mm, yeah, I love it. And I like the idea of because I think often we don't do that. We sort of say, "Hey, we're we're off track. Why is this not working? Why is that not working?" And all of a sudden, if if you if you pay attention, you suddenly realise, "Oh, the goals have changed." Or, or a lot of people talk about, "Hey, the goalposts are shifting all the time." So if we if we take <laughs> the approach that that you're doing, then we realise the goalposts are changing, and then um, we're not, you know, the, if the goal if we realise the goalposts are changing as they're changing, then we're not doing all this work that doesn't meet the, the new goals or the shifting situation. Absolutely. I agree. And final question, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? There, I thought a lot about that one. Uh, I, <laughs> but I, I think my answer is, is maybe fairly, fairly simple. I, I think we must not forget, and I have, this is a bit from my own experience uh, starting two businesses, it's we must not forget that we are the default already. Uh, unique mm. and if you and that's a that's a power because even if we want to work with the same things we have different approaches to them and i think uh, trusting in that and and remembering that you are actually unique and you are different by default uh, and there's a danger that you become uh too too similar if you follow the, the mainstream that can be that can actually work really well if you do that yeah um I'm just trying to think which guest this was, but it, it was a little while ago, um, said to me, we're all born different, don't die the same. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah, statement. That was just brilliant, that yeah. really, really sums it up. And I think that that's, hmm. that's the key. You start a business because you have an idea and because you were different in your idea. And even if it's hmm. the same as somebody else had, you might, you might do it in a different way. You might communicate about it in a different way. You might, you know, uh, differentiate yourself in that if you believe in it. Hmm. And it does come back to a couple of things that we've talked about today, and that's the self-awareness and the confidence in being yourself, embracing that. Absolutely. I think the self-awareness is for me a crucial quality of, of everybody, definitely, but, but people who want to be leaders, they, they, they need to have that quality, I think. Hmm. 
Fabulous. Well, thanks for getting us through the buzz round. Thank you. Uh, now, this has been wonderful, Thomas. Where can people find out more about you and um, and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today? I am happy for every connection, as I as I said initially. I think that's what I thrive off and 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 live for to to connect with people. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, please connect. Um, I'm also, of course, our website, uh, thecrisiscompass.com. And you also find me on Medium and Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I left ten years ago and never came back. <laughs> um, but yeah, please please connect. I'll be happy for everything. Great, and we'll we'll post those links on the show notes as well, so people can click through. All right, do you have some parting advice for our listener today? I think it's just about uh, yeah, crisis is uh, since I've worked with it is a is a word that's heavily loaded, but beyond it, it's it's all about change, and I think we're all excellent in doing so. The past sixteen months showed that to everybody, hopefully, even though it was frustrating for many. But we're all reinventors, mm. we're all innovators, and we must not forget that. Yeah, yeah, that's great, great parting advice. And I, I always laugh when people say we don't like change, and and I, I kind of respond with, depending on the person, I, I can be flippant, and I'll say, well, you're changing all the time. You know, Constant change. Your heartbeat, your heartbeat is, um, you is increasing or decreasing depending on the level of exercise. You, you're taking deeper breaths this time than a few moments ago because you're speaking. So. Everything is changing in your body without you even knowing it. And, and isn't it great that your body is doing that? So embrace change. <laughs> it's it, 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 as you say, and the crisis is an extreme one because we're changing and developing all the time, all the time. And, and if, and if you have this mindset, it becomes less, maybe less scary, maybe demystifying it a bit. We'll see. Hmm. Okay. And finally, who else should I get on the show and why? If you could get him. Uh, Matthew Walker, that's the guy who wrote the book about the sleep. I would uh, yeah. uh, okay. definitely right. would, well, we, uh, would. He would be a fantastic. You, you don't know him personally. I don't know him personally, um, but he's yeah, okay. very open to these things. Um, yeah. But I know uh, one other recommendation, maybe um, Matt Watkinson. Uh, I know him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wrote a fantastic book. Uh, it's uh, it's really about um, decisions for your businesses. It's a great book, uh, very simple and, and, and great advice. So that's also someone I Okay. Include. All right. Well, we might get an introduction to Matt from you and um, invite him onto the show. And we'll I, I'll get a hold of the book, Why We Sleep, and maybe uh, reach out to Matthew and give him some feedback on the book and start yeah, a conversation. And hopefully we can get him on the show as well. I think he would be an incredibly added value for, 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 the, for the audience because I think he, what he has to say is just it's mind-blowing. I think. Hmm. All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights so generously with us today, Thomas. I've really enjoyed this. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation. There's been so many valuable tips, I think, that um, will help our listener to take away some ideas for how they might um, manage people, manage emotions, deal with people in, in crises and even in just building that culture of good decision making so thanks a lot Uh, all the best for the future and let's stay in touch thank you Jürgen. you're an amazing host and thank you for giving me the space and i really enjoyed our conversation so yeah looking forward to being in touch (laughs) 
I hope you enjoyed that insightful and informative conversation with Thomas and took something away from his episode. There were so many fascinating and inspiring insights in this conversation with Thomas from learning multiple ways to communicate to building your culture muscle. I'd love to know what you took away from Thomas's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Thomas Lantala. That is T-H-O-M-A-S-L-A-H-N-T-H-A-L-E-R. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Thomas Lantala. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Thomas, as well as links to the Crisis Compass website, his social media pages, his Reinventors podcast, and the other resources we spoke about in today's conversation. If you like this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with at least two other people that it might help. You are making a difference in the world. Tag me in when you share that, and I'll reach out to you with a special thank you surprise. Thomas suggested we have a conversation with Matt Wilkinson, author of The Grid, and with Matthew Walker, author of Why We Sleep, on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So Matt and Matthew, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Thomas Lantala. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including Arjun Sen of Zen Mango and life coach Diana Gremillion. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.